0: Later this week, Jews all over the world are going to be celebrating the Passover holiday. It's a very sacred one for the Jews on their calendar. It is in fact the first holiday they celebrate every year. And of their major festivals and feasts, it is the one probably that God's Christians are most familiar with because it concerns the exodus from Egypt and the freedom from bondage under Pharaoh's leadership, uh, thanks to Moses and his guidance of the people. The history of Passover is a fascinating one. Of course, it takes place in the book of Exodus. But the relevance of Passover to God's people today is especially important. Now, unlike Jews, Christians don't necessarily celebrate Passover, certainly not as a religious uh, holiday. But there is great importance in knowing about the Passover celebration and what took place there and the significance it has for us relative to our Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Let's begin by, first of all, just thinking about Passover's history uh, and the way that it uh, unfolded in the biblical narrative. It begins basically in the book of Exodus, about chapter 7 or so, when uh, God begins delivering uh, punishment to uh, Pharaoh and to Egypt. Moses had already gone to Pharaoh and told them on behalf of God, let the people go. Uh, But Pharaoh and Egypt refused to do so, and so now it is the time for God to start lashing out to try to uh, break the heart and break the spirit of Pharaoh. It begins with the Nile turning to blood, and then it's followed by that with frogs invading the land. After that, lice plague the people, and then flies swarm everywhere. As you go through the plagues that uh, we have seen depicted in movies and we've watched uh, our children grow up learning and see the illustrations in, in various class books, It's important to remember that these are not random events, not just natural. We know that God is the one behind them, uh, but they are specifically chosen by God. Each one of the plagues that plague, Egypt, took a direct shot at one of the great Egyptian gods that the people there served. The Nile god was a shot against Osiris, the god of the Nile. The frog god, uh, Happy, uh, was certainly not very happy to see the frogs invade the land. The Egyptians, at least, weren't happy. The lice god, Seb, uh, the Egyptians would have thought turned on them because the lice invaded the land, as they would have thought about Uachet, the uh, fly god, the god of the flies. Uh, The cattle god was Ammon, and cattle, too, were struck and became sick and died all over the land. Boils also struck the people. That was a shot against Imhotep, who was the god of healing, to whom they no doubt prayed and prayed but could find no relief. Hail then turned to fire in Exodus 9. That's one of my favorite miracles in the entire Bible, is that God rains down ice balls from the sky that explode into flames when they hit the ground. That juxtaposition of ice and fire just, it, it blows me away every time I think about it. But that itself is, a, is a, a, a repudiation of the false god Shu, whom the Egyptians worshipped as their god of weather. And then locusts infested all the land, and that's uh, Serapia the god of locust protection, who seemingly turned against them. But of course, these are not gods. They don't exist except in the minds of the Egyptians. No one's turning against them, no one's helping them, no one's hearing them, because they don't exist. And that's the point God's trying to make. I am the only god. You need to bow to me and let my people go. Finally, then darkness covers the land for the ninth plague. And that, of course, repudiates the false god Ra, the god of the sun. And so darkness covers Egypt. But after all of those, still Pharaoh would not let the people go. Still his heart was hardened, uh, and he refused to acquiesce to God's demand. And so there was one more plague that God was going to commit. God, God said to Moses, I'm going to do one more plague. And once this plague is done, Pharaoh will let the people go. So prepare yourself for it, because it's coming after this plague. But you need to prepare yourself not only mentally, but you need to prepare yourself nationally. For what is about to happen and that is the death of the firstborn sons now there is great symbolism here first of all it's a shot against isis the the god of life the goddess of life and the mother of all egyptians god is going to show superiority over this false goddess by uh, executing specifically the firstborn sons of every house so it's you cannot pass it off as it was some kind of a plague or a worldly kind of plague, like the black plague or the yellow fever or something like that. This is not a natural catastrophe that killed a lot of people. It is a targeted assassination in order to break the heart of Pharaoh. But the symbolism is there. The poetry of it is there. Because earlier in Egyptian-Israeli history, um, the previous Pharaoh had tried to kill firstborn sons of the Israelite families had been thrown into the Nile, because the Israelite people are growing too large uh, for Pharaoh's liking. And so this is not only a breaking of Pharaoh's heart, it's not only a showing of God's superiority, it's also an act of divine justice, an eye for an eye, is happening here. Now, before this happens, God tells the people, I have some things I need you to do. He sa- It all begins really in chapter 12 of Exodus, and God says to the people, this is going to be a significant day on your calendar going forward. This is going to be the beginning of your calendar, the first month and the beginning of your months. And you're going to symbolize and recognize and memorialize this occasion for years to come. And in order to do so, you're gonna take a lamb. Not just any lamb, but a lamb without blemish, a perfect lamb, Uh, the best of the best and you're going to care for this lamb and feed it and grow it and raise it as as strong as it could be and then on the 14th day of this month in the evening you're going to kill this lamb and then you will drain its blood into a basin take a hyssop and and use almost like a paintbrush and cover it with the blood and then you're going to spread the blood on the doorposts and the mantle of your home you're going to cover the outside of your home essentially the, the doorpost the entranceway in the blood of the sacrificed lamb. The lamb itself is going to be roasted and it's going to be eaten. And it's going to be eaten with some bitter herbs and some unleavened bread. And you're going to eat it not raw, but you're going to, uh, to eat it fully and completely. You're not going to chop it up. There were very specific and intricate details that had to be followed here. But the one takeaway that we always remember uh, is the blood. God's very specific. You drain the blood and you spread the blood on the door and the mantle of your home. And then the key verse to remember, Exodus 12 verse 13, God says, The blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So God has promised that there is going to come this plague, death. It's sometimes called the angel of death, but it's never called an angel in the Bible. It's just death passing over the land. So death will pass over, but it will be targeted. And if God sees the blood of this sacrificed lamb covering this home, those within that home will be spared. Annually, from then on, the Jews would celebrate this event. Of course, we know what happened in Exodus. You've probably seen the movie. You've certainly no doubt read the text uh, over the years Death comes over the land. Those who are in the blood-covered houses are spared, and those who are not, as in the Egyptians, are killed. And as a result of such a catastrophic plague, Pharaoh lets the people go. A lot of things happen after that, but that's essentially the Exodus story. Um, The people then go, and they're led by God's Spirit to the Red Sea. They cross the Red Sea, and they are led by the Spirit to the Promised Land. As I say, annually, Jews celebrate this event. Uh, every Jewish male would return to Jerusalem to enjoy the Passover festivities. Jesus himself does this. In his ministry, he had at least three times where he went to Jerusalem during his ministry, in John 2, John 5, and in John 13. In John 2, he goes there for the first time as a minister, and he really raises a ruckus. He uh, overturns the money changers and drives them out of the temple and and basically kind of kicks off the animosity between he and the uh, religious leaders. He goes back in John 5 where he heals a paralyzed man on the Sabbath day during the Passover uh, time. And the Pharisees get all up in arms because he does a miracle on the Sabbath, which they equate to working on the Sabbath, even though he does a miracle on the Sabbath. Uh, And then finally on John 13, he returns to Jerusalem for the last time uh, and is executed and killed. But the circumstances of his execution, the circumstances of his death are themselves highly symbolic. Because Jesus went to Jerusalem to die as a Passover lamb, so that when God sees the blood of Christ covered the soul of the repentant believer, then he passes over them and doesn't execute his judgment upon them. Speaking of Jesus and the Passover lamb, there are numerous parallels worth referencing. For example, in the Old Testament, the Passover lamb entered the home that was to sacrifice it on the tenth day of the month. Um, the the first month of the Jewish calendar. In the New Testament, Jesus entered Jerusalem to the home of the people who would kill him on the tenth day of the month, the Passover month. He rode in on a donkey, but he would soon be led up to the hill carrying the cross. In the Old Testament, the Passover was done um, in... I mean, there were specific rules, but in terms of where you got the lamb, as long as you had a lamb that was the best lamb you owned, it was fine. But by the time of Jesus, it would become much more commercialized, and it became kind of a racket that the religious leaders uh, organized, where you were only really allowed to purchase a lamb and get your lamb from Jerusalem. And the lambs that were bought in Jerusalem were themselves raised, not too far from the city, in a little town called Bethlehem. That's right, the Passover lambs that were raised and then led into Jerusalem to be slaughtered for Passover when everyone came into town were raised, born in Jerusalem. Just like my master, the Passover lamb, was born in Jerusalem. And incidentally, when the lambs of Bethlehem came into Jerusalem, the people standing around would shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, as the lambs par- paraded into the city. They were about to be sacrificed. So too did my master, as he entered in Jerusalem, heard the sound of the people crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which literally means save us, save us. In the Old Testament Passover, the lamb had to be perfect, without blemish, without spot. You could not offer a second fiddle lamb. You had to offer the best of the best. So too was Jesus the best of the best. He was the best of us, offered by God for us. He didn't give us a second rate sacrifice. He gave us the best. The lamb, in fact, had to be examined in the Old Testament by the priest. You had to make sure that it met the the qualifications of being the best that you had to offer so too was our Passover lamb Christ examined by the priest. First Annas examined him, then Caiaphas examined him, the two serving as high priests, and then the whole Sanhedrin council of Jews examined him. Even Herod, the Roman-appointed king, examined him. Pontius Pilate, the Roman-appointed governor, examined him. Everyone examined him, and the thing they all had in common, some hated, some didn't care anything about him, some thought the whole thing was a joke, and some took very seriously the need to kill him. They all differed there, but they all agreed on one thing, they all agreed that they could not find a crime that Jesus committed. And so the Jews made up one, and the Romans went along with it. But either way, he was examined, and essentially found not guilty. The lamb, the Old Testament sacrifice, the purpose of that sacrifice, of that Passover lamb, was twofold. There was a blood purpose, and there was a uh, flesh purpose. Of course, we say the flesh had to be eaten, the blood had to be used. The flesh was eaten because God wanted the people to consume this animal that was so symbolic and representation, uh, representational of their salvation. He wanted them to, to make this lamb a part of them. And so to eat the lamb symbolized that. Jesus himself says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. He was speaking metaphorically, but he means the same thing. You must consume me metaphorically, have me a part of your life just as the Passover lamb had to be consumed and become a part of that household. Also, the blood of that lamb, as we mentioned, had to be used. It was used to cover the door. Well, the blood of Jesus covers us. It covers our sins. And when God sees the blood that's covered our sins, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees the blood of his perfect son. He sees a pure person. Though under that blood is someone who was a sinner. Now God just sees a saint through the blood of Jesus. Now, One more thing. If you think about the Passover story, as it is called, think about the Exodus story. There is a tremendous parallel between it and the story of our salvation. And really that parallel is brought out in the book of Romans. For example, in Romans, uh, we learn that God basically frees us from sin. That is the point that Paul makes in Romans 5, really chapter 4 through chapter 8, that God frees us from sin and we become servants to righteousness, and we get to follow the Spirit and have the blessings that are promised to us. Now, when you put it that way, that's basically the Exodus story. But listen to what Paul says just to summarize Romans 4 through 8. He says in Romans 4 that there was a promise given to Abraham. In Romans 5, he talks about the problem that came up after that promise was sin and bondage to sin. And then in chapter 6, Paul talks about baptism. In chapter 7, he talks about the law of God. In chapter 8, he talks about being led by the Spirit. Now, he says all these things to Christians. And so to Christians, he's talking about, you are the recipients of the promise made to Abraham in chapter 4, which is um, the blessing of Christ who undoes, the the bondage of sin, he talks about that in chapter 5, through baptism in chapter 6, which nullifies the the need to follow the law that you couldn't keep anyway in chapter 7. Instead, you follow the spirit to your spiritual blessings and promises, chapter 8. But now see how that whole pattern applies to the Exodus story. God's people were promised through Abraham blessings, a promised land. But in the meantime, they fell into bondage to Egypt. Then they were Exodus from that bondage by way of the, the blood covering and the death that passed over. And then what happens after that is they leave Egyptian bondage, they cross the Red Sea, and they start heading their way to the promised land. And what is the promised land? But the place that God said he would provide for them, the, the spiritual, bountiful, blessed place. That he promised for them and he led them by his spirit to that place that is not just the exodus story that is the story of our salvation we have been promised salvation by god we fall into bondage to sin but then we're freed from that bondage through the blood of jesus christ and in that exodus story as it is laid out in the book of romans paul tells that story of our exodus itself the actual blood covered sacrifice that washes away the the sin and kills the bad things outside and protects those things inside, that whole part of the Exodus story is played out in Romans chapter 6, where Paul says, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live in it any longer? Well, don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. And just like Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also are raised to walk in newness of life. In other words, we put our sin to death and we touch the blood of Jesus and where is the blood of Jesus in this text? When we are baptized. Because when we are baptized, we cover ourselves in the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. and We ourselves experience a death, burial and resurrection. We go through a spiritual exodus. Just like the children of Israel stayed in their houses covered in blood and God passed over those houses and so death happened outside but not inside. We cover ourselves in the blood of Christ, and so death happens outside, but inside we're renewed. We put to death the sin, and we renew a new person. And that happens in the promise of baptism. Paul says in Romans 6, verse 7, For he that is dead is freed from sin. You are a slave to sin, you're in bondage to sin, you're shackled to sin, but through baptism you are freed from sin. You get a spiritual exodus. You cross a spiritual Red Sea. And you get to go into your new promised land, led by the Spirit, to the bountiful blessings of spiritual bliss in God through Christ. Enjoy the Passover holiday. You don't have to celebrate Passover to enjoy Passover. Enjoy it by remembering what God did for His people in the Old Testament and what He did for His people in the New Testament. Through the death and the resurrection of Christ and the shedding of His blood, which can wash away your sins. But only, according to Paul, when you are baptized into Him for the forgiveness of your sins. God bless. And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash Matthew-Martin414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then. But for the most part, I put everything behind a massive, giant paywall where you have to pay upwards of I think it's ninety nine cents a month. So if you can if you can manage that a dollar a month, <clears throat> that's you know it's not easy. But if you want to whip out a buck, then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, Anchor A N C H O R dot F M slash Matthew M A T T H E W dash Martin four one four, and hit subscribe for a buck, and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files.